Hello and welcome to The Ahmad Show, where we get to sit down with entrepreneurs and creative spirits from around the world. You can find me on Instagram at Ahmad Mia, A-M-A-D-M-I-A-A-N, or at The Ahmad Show. In this episode, I get to sit down with Arshia Huck, also known as Discostan, an Indian-American artist, DJ, producer, and writer living in LA. Arshia talks us through the narratives presented in her work across mediums which are heavily influenced by her experiences both as an immigrant and as a Muslim. She also talks to us about the dangers of creating social echo chambers online. So without further ado, let's get straight to Arshia. Like, for instance, how do you find the truth of Arshia? You know, because like it's a very like age-old question, which brings peace and happiness to you. But it's 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 at at the top of it, it's something that's you know very nuanced and it can be taken any which way. But if you look at it deeper as to like what is your truth and what you kind of want to represent, and how you're going to be presented to the world, it it, it starts to question and opens up like this whole Pandora's box of what is truth to you and how you want to get other people to perceive it and then yeah I mean how do you perceive it how do you how do you be truthful to yourself you know you, you didn't start off easy <laughs> right into it um, so you know I actually um, it's an interesting question because I did I did grow up in a in a um, in a framework in a family where things are very black and white mm-hmm. um, you know there is definitely um, this very true sense of, of right and wrong and, um, and all of these things. And it's something that I, from, from a very young age, always felt a little bit, um, like I, I always asked questions from the time I was young, you know, like from Islamic school to now, like, you know, well, why, you know, what is this? Like, I remember being like six or seven and, and asking about um, this idea that we have of, everything is written, you know, everything is written, but then why do we have a choice? You know, why, then why, what is this about choice? But, and that's a kind of an unanswerable question, but it's something that I was asking really young and, and no one knew what to do with me. You know, they're they're just really confused, but I've, I've definitely always had that impulse. Um, And sometimes it, I think it, um, you know, it can be frustrating for people too, because they think as soon as you're asking a question that you're challenging them, when really you might be trying to get um, information. So, um, you know, I mean, I have my own internal sense of, um, of ethics and like what, I'm sorry about that. I have, I have my own internal sense of, you know, ethics, but it, it really, I really rely on my intuition a lot um you know i really uh rely on my senses and my perception on entering situations uh, and kind of relating to and, and making decisions and um judgments that way and by judgments i don't mean you know judgments of, of kind of superiority or inferiority but just assessing a situation um so in terms of, of of what is my my truth or my essence it's um i don't know it's a difficult question it's i really um am a person that lives very much um you know in the present and and kind of 
um, navigates through situations from, from that sense and trying to come from a place of empathy, really, you know, in dealing with other people. There's, when I look through your work, there is a aligning, which it, it, there's always a relation to religion and, and coming back to that, right? And I think that has been a narrative because even when I asked for your truth, you started with that. You know, you were like, this was a code of ethics and the ethics was driven from religion. And this was when I was very young and, and, and you came back to it. So it's very interesting because a truth can be anything, but that's what you started with. So it's, it's always interesting to kind of see where the person starts. I mean, it might also be because I am in my family home right now. So there's been a lot of, a lot of kind of, you know, encounters with that yeah. um, in, in the last week. So when I'm here, I think about that a lot more. But, you know, it is, it is my foundation. It's where I come from, you know. I, um, it's interesting because I am, um, you know, in some ways a pretty um, unconventional, like, artist or, or I've, you know, I've done, worked in a lot of ways that, are are pretty radical and yet i come from a, a place where that wasn't really um Except a conversation yeah. Or, yeah so um and you know it's yeah so it's very um very interesting to to be here and and kind of you know i mean i have to acknowledge um my roots and i always think about what it is what is it that me coming from that background and, you know, leading to this place, um, an interesting um, position to occupy, because especially living in America, you know, you, you, I, you know, I will always checking any box, I'll always answer my ethnicity, my, my religious identification, etc. Even though a lot of people from those places might not identify me as such. Mm -hmm. But politically, I feel like it's really important to identify, you know, with those things in this climate. Oh, 100%. Um, 100%. I yeah. mean, it's, it's also interesting, right? Like, I mean, a couple of things where one, the world that we're living in, everyone has an opinion on how you should live your religion or your truth in, in, in whatever way. Rather than looking in, you always have to look outside. And I mean, whether it be the social media world or whatever it may be, but the fact that everyone has an opinion on how you should be living rather than just letting you be and, and, and just, you know, different tangent but coming back to this have you been able to evolve that conversation as a young child of what you were looking towards and what was black and white and now as an adult or actually actually interestingly you're in your family home right now has that black and white kind of become easier to to take into your truth today into your present it's, be it's become easier to negotiate with it and to um, realize that it's a separate realm and logic from how mm -hmm. I operate. But I always knew that. I knew that from a young age that, you know, there was never a period for me of being, um, you know, in any way indoctrinated by anything mm -hmm. and then kind of having to come out of it. Um, like in, inside myself, I always knew that I had certain um, questions or ideas about what it meant to be, um, you know, I, because I, I, I honestly think that, um, yeah, I mean, in our, in our uh, traditions and, and places, there's often an equation between truth and, like you said, religious codes. And so 
um, for me, it's really, um, it, it has become easier to realize that the separation between, you know, where I am and where I began, for sure. And how has that kind of fueled the work that you do? Because this is a very deep question and it's very deep rooted in what you do. And it's so beautiful the way and, and the narratives that you take out of your work, like Ajnabi Milan, like it's, you know, it's a work that is very relevant to even today of strangers kind of coming together and not just in the religious sense or in the sense that you kind of t- you you present it but also in the fact that in this trumpian world that we're living i mean you're living in i'm living in the uae right now but it's it's very relevant because a lot of people are kind of coming together but sometimes it's not as easily um it's not as easy to kind of come together, but yet we still do and we continue to, right? So I'd, I'd love to kind of hear a little, a little bit about where that kind of came from. The that idea particular of, work. That particular work. And also yeah. in that route, you grew up in the U.S.? Um, uh, yeah, so I was born in Hyderabad, in mm-hmm. Dakin, Hyderabad, Dakin. And I... Uh, but I did emigrate to the U.S. pretty young. So by, you know, there was some back and forth, but um, my schooling was all here from the time I was young. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I was here, but, you know, I would go back every year to Hyderabad and spend, you know, all of my summers there, um, sometimes winters as well. So that was kind of actually, um, you know, as much of a home as this was. And in that way, um, I think my specific um, experience is a little, you know, different. And that's something we can talk about, too. You know, being in diaspora, there's so many different ways to, um, you know, people either assimilate fully or they can really try to recreate what they had. And that goes back to this idea of nostalgia and nostalgia being can actually be a dangerous force. And that's something I'd love to talk to you more about. But uh, but yeah, I did. I did um, mostly grow up here, but I never quite fully identified with being American. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting because Ajinabi Milan, which, as you know, means Ajinabi is stranger, stranger yeah. um, and Milan uh, can be a word for alien. And when you first come to the U.S. and you get your um, green card, like you're considered a resident alien. So I think that was always in my head because I remember that from you know my documents from when I was younger before because I didn't naturalize to become an American citizen till, um, till much later. And I, um, you know, always found that kind of funny because it was like, you know, the idea of the alien um, being in your identification, you know, um, it's such a process of othering, you know, from, from the get go. Um, So, so like using the word Ajinabi in that is, you know, kind of, um, playing on those ideas of, of, of being a stranger, but also being an outsider, um, you know, being an immigrant. And then, um, you know, at the time of, of, of Trump coming into power, because it was, um, you know, not long after that, that this idea came to be, there's this whole idea of borders and walls and all of these things. And um, I'm, from you know in all aspects very against nationalism i think it's been here um honestly before trump and it's all kind of coming to light right now but you know 
the exact exaggerated theatrics to which he's taken it like let's build this yeah. wall and whatever and the ir- ironic thing is is that um a lot of the trump supporters are also part of the christian right but when you look at you know i i'm not s- schooled in the bible or anything but one one of the um verses that i do know about is um a a, a verse from uh jesus who is said to have stated i was a stranger and you welcomed me yeah. it was in one of these addresses to the pharisees um when he had i think migrated from one place to another and and he was talking about how he came there you know as a stranger and he was welcomed and we have these parables and like you know in um the islamic migration as well and so it was kind of interesting to me that um in that in that you know, religious texts, there's this message of welcoming, and yet we're building these things of exclusion. So, so there was this idea of the stranger as well. Um, I had also been doing these signs on the freeways, because um, in, in LA, you know, the freeways are, we spend like half our lives on the freeways. And then there's like these, bridge, these signs that are on, on bridges, right? And have you been to LA, yeah. by the way? You have, yeah. Times, yeah. So, you know, there's like these signs that people put up like, you know, fuck Trump or no ice or all of these things. And it's like a great place to put your message on the freeway because you're reaching millions of people every day for free. Um, And you can be, you know, it's, it's, it's better probably to operate anonymously in those contexts. But I I started putting messages up with um, a friend of mine and we were doing like kind of more oblique messages, like freedom for freedom for all freedom from all like kind of coming from like an anarchist, um, you know, direction. And then I started doing, cause you have these overpasses and they're one after another. And it's almost like when you're driving, it's like, it could be a narrative, you know, from one to the next. But um, I decided to do one and another in Urdu the same message and it was funny the Urdu one got taken down like within an hour you know oh, someone wow. probably called and it was like you know it was like sub ki azadi sub se azadi like was on yeah. the and yeah i mean someone saw it and they were probably like what is this terrorist message like just the font the itself, font yeah, yeah. it's like insight sphere the specific reason i asked where you grew up i mean you told me that you had grown up in, in Hyderabad as well but the idea of nostalgia, but being in between these two places consistently, I did not know that you had always kind of went back and forth. Because um, usually what happens is, right, like you, you emigrate to a place, you spend majority of your time there, and then your nostalgia kind of builds up. And then you have these memories. But if you're going back every year or, or every so often, how did that evolve for you? Like, what, you're still very much rooted there. And then the coming into the US and, and in that time period and, and, and kind of normalizing to to nationalism and, and everything else that's kind of going on. I'm sure that it must be difficult, but how do you kind of navigate that? You know, I mean, I think one thing that you pointed out um, that I think is a common thread in diaspora is that, as you said, when you leave a place, you retain that image of the place yeah. and carry it with you. So diaspora can actually be a great place for preservation. Um, 
it can also be a really dangerous place as, as I touched on because you know you stay with this idea of the home culture and then it, things might actually be evolving there and you know it can also inform a lot of narratives of, of reversionism or you know these kinds of things um, but it can also be a really powerful place to be I mean I, the thing I always think about is um, there's a language called Akkadian mm-hmm. which is like kind of an old form of French and it is still spoken today in northeast Maine because, um, you know, it was French, uh, you know, people from France yeah. that had come and settled here. And they kept speaking this form of the language um, because they were isolated. It's preserved and still living in a way. Um, so I think there is an important role that diaspora can play, even though, you know, n- now, especially, you know, as a fully fledged artist going back and forth between subcontinent in here there's a lot of conversations about how diaspora interprets tradition and you know um there can sometimes be some kind of disregard from homeland about what diaspora does because there can be a really you know especially with social media and all these things there can be um a tendency to i feel like self-orientalize or replay colonialist dynamics and how we tell our narratives and i think we do really have to be careful about that. But I also don't think it's a closed or one directional thing. I think we definitely inform back, you know, because we do have some distance. And as I said, you know, there is this possibility of, of preservation of, of some things, um, you know, that um, or processing of things in a different way. So I, I definitely think that, you know, both things, both sides can learn from each other. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I do see in a lot of, um, a lot of social media or a lot of like, um, because that is where we're living, especially in this moment, right. Of, of, um, the pandemic, like our lives are really, I mean, it's, you know, social media is stupid, but it's also where we are, you know, so much of the time. So it is, it is like this metaphorical space that we're, um, you know, living in. Have you seen? I see there's so much like aestheticization of certain, things without the political dialogue, without the deeper dialogue, like it's all, you know, everything's condensed into one image. See, um, what, I, what I've been thinking about lately, actually, on, on this point of social media, on, on the point of, of, of living in social media these days, right, I think is, is very, very relevant, and very, very true, is I, I recently watched this, I mean, I haven't finished watching it, but have you seen this documentary on Netflix um, about social media and how um, they're tracking so much and basically data is, is more powerful and more valuable than gold. And basically the way that they go about creating these platforms is to psychologically mute you in the sense that you will stay on this platform and they know so much about you that they can keep feeding you to keep you on the platforms, right? Mm-hmm. So there's one side of it is this. And then secondly, I just came from this, this exhibition um, yesterday that was, um, forgetting the name but it was age um but the idea is that in this age where we're living and we like to think that you know we're not in a bubble we don't have these biases because we're able to filter and we know what's going on but looking at the other side of these platforms we have more biases than ever because we are being fed more and more to live in these biases, do you not think? 
For sure. I mean, it, by the way, it's art in the age of anxiety. Yes, she just yes. mentioned she was it's art in the age of anxiety. Because yeah. I was like, I remember seeing this in my feed. Um, so I, um, yeah, it's been a really interesting moment, especially in, uh, in the U.S. With, with everything that's happened with Black Lives Matter, but predating that even Me Too, you know, um, which there's been this whole outpouring of political movements that unfold online there's a lot of you know the the space between public and private is is completely changing in a way the boundaries between that in a way that we have not ever experienced i think um and it's you know yeah it's really um and there is also this kind of you know performance performativeness that can happen with politics there's a lot of I feel like it can actually lead to like a lot of um reproduction of of you know like sometimes I feel like with the with the dialogues that go on with the with the left and and all of these things you know it feels like there's like a lot of um intimidation and aggression that goes on you know online as well like in terms of like keep everyone telling everyone else what to do and how to live and all of this judgment you know it's actually quite a terrifying space in some 100%. ways. 100%. Agreed. And, and yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that is what scares me. And, and now, like, hearing what you were talking about and, like, in this, this world that we're living in, this kind of dystopian world, and seeing the other side of technology companies, you know, because we think, okay, these are our followers or whomever we're speaking to. But then it's, it's like an echo chamber. So we're just mm-hmm. feeding the information of of revolting against something or, or talking about something to the same people that, in, that, that like it more and more. So are totally. we really kind of, are we able to extend our word and really raise awareness or are we just kind of playing to that need of ourselves to be accepted by others? And oh, because you've shared something, I have to share something if I mean it or not, regardless, but because we're in this echo chamber, we have to keep on doing it. And if you don't do it, people will think that, why are you not raising your voice and showing people this message when, again, it comes back to this echo chamber where no one is, no one is seeing it other than the people that already are doing it. Like, it's like a, a loop. For sure. I mean, you know, it felt like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really cynical about the possibility of change coming through, through those platforms uh, because I, I, think it's precisely what you're saying about it reaching the same message reaching the people that you would already be reaching um, meanwhile in California while BLM was happening you know at the height of it I think in late July or early August there yeah. were um, a few lynchings you know like the old school symbolic lynching of a person you know at a tree you know and it was kind of like that was the message to me that like, you know, despite all of the echo chambers, like it's not really reaching. In fact, there's been statement made what's happening, you know, um, like, or, or, or this kind of movement or this revolution that people are talking about. Um, it was actually, there was like a reaction against that, a very violent reaction, yeah. you know? So, um, so I, you know, I don't know. I think it's a, you know, it's a good, platform for at least sharing information but i don't know if movement can be built through it i'm not totally sure 
it'd be interesting to see how it evolves. Like, I mean, I, I think that documentary really like puts so much perspective on how these platforms work, which I had no idea about. And I think more and more people are watching this and more and more questions are kind of coming about. But kind of coming back to you, now growing up between Hyderabad and the US, forming your narrative about how art was gonna take place and, and, and you were gonna start producing. What, what did you study? And how did, how did you get to the point of what Arshia is? Because Arshia is also disco stan, Arshia is also a mixed media artist. Uh, how do you become you? So uh, I started, um, you know, in my, at my undergrad, um, I was supposed to study medicine like everyone else. And then I, um, you know, I actually, um, which I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, I was fascinated by, I would go to nanotechnology seminars and things like that while yeah. I was at school, but I would be looking at it as a poetic metaphor. So I think of a lot of science as actually ways to, um, think to me, it's poetry really. And, and, you know, kind of like looking at graphs and charts and kind of translating that into movements that we see around us. Um, but I, um, realized that I wanted to tell stories. And so, um, I wanted to be a writer and, um, I studied comparative literature and, um, my minor was in Spanish. If I, you know, if I could, go back now, like to that time, I probably, you know, would have studied, um, cause it's like, you have to be able to read and write in a language. Mm -hmm. And, um, my Urdu, even though I could read and write, it was definitely, you know, more at a vernacular level at that time so that I wasn't able to read literature. And, you know, now there's some programs for Urdu here, but in, in like the, um, nineties, um, you know, when I was just a toddler, <laughs> it was amazing. I went to college when I was just five years old. Um, I, um, there was no program like that. So anyway, I, you know, I decided I wanted to um, do that, but by the time I was done, because, you know, the, this is a problem in every discipline of study in the world, in my opinion, that it is coming from a colonial framework. So it's like everything, like the discipline is everything that was produced in Europe and America. And then the rest of it is like not even considered. So when we study, um, you know, postmodern thought um, I, in comparative literature, I was being force fed Deleuze and Derrida and all those things, which I'm glad I was exposed to. But there was, by the end of it, for me, I was done with language. I was done with um, how exclusionary academic language can be in keeping certain people out and expressing things that could be said in, you know, much more immediate ways. It was, it, it just felt like, you know, this whole realm of dividing between um, the haves and the have nots in a way. So I decided I wanted to move towards a medium that was more based in um, affecting people uh, reaching people without language. So, um, you know, at that time, I decided to study film, but I also was so anti, I had become so anti like struct, like structures in terms of traditional narrative structures, traditional, um, you know, like the three acts or like this kind of thing that I, I didn't want to go to a program that was going to teach me that. And I think 
It was because there was always a sense in me that this form of storytelling was something that had come from an outside place and had been imposed on us as the only way of telling stories. So I um, decided to study experimental film at CalArts, um, which, you know, is really exploding all structures of narrative, etc. You know, at the end of the day, you know, did it teach me how to work in the film industry in LA? Not necessarily. I did learn how to, you know, process film in my bathtub, but I also did really work from the place of the senses. So, um, you know, in some ways I've, I've always felt that that's first and foremost where I come from. And, and from that point, you know, um, it, it was an MFA in film and video, not in fine art, but I was also exposed to that realm. Um, and, since that time when I completed that, um, that degree and kind of, you know, I, I, my work has been interspersed, my creative work with working in the industry. So I'm, you know, there's times where I get to make my art and there's times where I haven't been able to, but there's been a lot of time for me to think along the way. I'm really, um, come from a place of like, I take something in and it might be five years before it manifests into something You're able to process it yeah and i'm really a believer in in letting that happen and not just producing for the sake of the market as an artist which maybe doesn't make me the most commercially viable artist but it comes back to that idea of, of truth like i'm going to say something when i want to say it and it, and and when it feels ready if i don't have something to say then i'm not going to say it um but you know also along the way this idea of getting away from language or getting into realms where I can reach people on a more sensory level has really evolved. Um, so from language, from text, from writing to film, to sound, to radio, to installation, um, to performance art, it's all kind of moving more and more into how can I be in the body and how can I affect other people in their bodies. So Along that path, Discoslan came into being because it was a way for me to write a love letter to my sonic universe that I had grown up with because I had, you know, actually, even though I did grow up in America, I didn't really have much exposure to Western music at all because of the household I grew up in. I didn't hear Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin until I was like in my mid to late 20s, believe it or not. So my whole world of reference was completely like Ghazal and Khawali and all of these things in Bollywood, of course. Um, and then, you know, I knew from, from those experiences that sound could be a really powerful force in transporting people from one place to another, from a thinking state into a feeling state, mm -hmm. um, and really affect people on an emotional level. So Discostan was at first a very personal project of me sharing this music. Um, and then not knowing first through radio and the intimacy of radio. It was like always like this late night show where I would like, you know, also talk in between. Um, and then into a public space, which I didn't know at that time in uh, around 2010, if anyone would be interested in that at all. Because um, there were a lot of world music parties, but again, going back to that whole colonial thing, it was like, what does that mean, world music, you know? it's so problematic. Like yeah. we have dance music in this club, but then like world music, like everyone else that's not, that's Brown. How, like, do, you, how do you kind of subcategorize that? Yeah. 
So for me, I mean, it was, you know, disco span, disco obviously being the genre of disco, which is like what I remember earliest because disco came to subcontinent later, you know, like in the 80s. Um, but also, you know, calling the club disco, which is, you know, in Spanish, it's disco, like in Pakistan and in India, you'd say a disco, you know, we're going to the disco. Yeah. Um, and then also the idea of the disc and then Stan as a site being land or home. So it was an imaginary homeland. And it was creating a geography, a connection between, um, for me, what my universe was, which was a subcontinent, but also, you know, having grown up in a Muslim family, spending time in the Arab world, knowing that there's so much of our cultural language that came from those regions. Um, you know, really thinking about the pre and post-colonial exchange. For example, you know, my, um, on my mother's side, we have someone from Yemen, you know, like some generations back. Um, there was a lot of exchange. So like when there's the similarity between food or music, you know, really thinking about that. Or when I went to Egypt, I, I didn't know this. Um, I went to Egypt in 2013, their national dishes, koshri, yeah. which, yeah, comes from Kichri. So, Does it? Um, yeah, because it was when the British train, um, the British work colonized Egypt briefly, and then they brought over the railroad. They brought them to Egypt to build the railroad there. And so they brought Kichri, and that got adapted into Goshri. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, mean, it's, I, I love them both equally. Like They're both absolutely delicious. Uh, I think I went crazy when I was in Egypt eating Koshri. It was so good. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's, you know, there is this kind of like so much fluidity and exchange between um, our places. But Arsha, one thing I'd like to ask, and I mean, I love that you went into Disco Sound and you were describing that and then comparable languages, but don't you think music and film are also languages in a way? Like they are mediums of communicating something, right? For sure, they are. They are. And, you know, there's definitely, we have, have, we start to understand their structures, you know, we start to understand um, their, there's like a um, certain conventions or devices that we share socially. I mean, that's what all language is, right? It's not even about English or Urdu, but it's about um, abstracting things enough so that we can communicate about them. Yeah. So yeah, you can't escape from that if you're sharing something. I, this is something I've thought about a lot. And my favorite story of all time as a parable is um, a story by the writer um, Jorge Luis Borges mm-hmm. called Funes the Memorious. And in this story, um, there's a man who has the perfect memory. And so the perfect memory means that he remembers everything perfectly, which means that he can't communicate about things to other people because when he thinks about a chair, he sees it as like, okay, four, you know, planes of wood with this angle of light, you know, but he can't abstract it. He, rem- he sees it so perfectly that he can't see it as anything but itself. And so he can't see that there's another chair, that it's the same concept um, so that he's not able to communicate because he can't reduce things a little bit he can't you know and that's kind of what all communication is is reducing things a little bit so that we but we never really know if we're talking about the same thing if we got really existential you know we don't know how you see blue is how i see blue and all those things i mean that you know that can get into like a whole that's an endless conversation (laughs) that goes back to chismat and and uh free will so. (laughs) (laughs) so wait okay so 
you started Discostan and it becomes this it becomes this platform. You're an artist on the side. What else do you do? Oh, uh, well, you know, my my I work um, as a as an editor, so that's my my. So your your love for language didn't go away. You still, I mean, your your like or dislike of language is still with you. It's still there for sure. Um, and actually, I I do think that I will end my days as a writer. I think I'll go back to it at some point. You know, which is where I wanted to begin. Um, and I'm also um, currently doing an Urdu reading group that meets every week, which is really great. Um, it's, a, it's a small thing. There's like six of us and we read stories and you're welcome to join if we can make the time work. But it's, um, you know, there's someone in, in Delhi who, work, who wakes up at like 6 a.m. to join wow. us. And there's a couple people in L.A., um, a few people on the East Coast. And we read stories. We read everything from, um, you know, we read something by Prem Chand, which was like in this super old Urdu bordering on Farsi that like we had to look up every other word and we had to like consult all of our elders and they still didn't know some of the words. Um, you know, we've read a lot of feminist poetry, um, you know, and um, we even read some fables. So no, my love for language is, is definitely present. Language is something that has always been um, very important to me, you know, coming from a bilingual household and um, navigating between the poetics of Urdu and um, the functionality or, you know, I mean, I guess English can be poetic in its own ways, but, yeah. you know, it's just it, it, the nuances of a language shape your worldview. So I'm, I'm super interested in that, but I'm also really invested in how we can um, kind of work with language to work against exclusion, you know, hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I mean, I mean, you know, for me, it's, it's, I agree with you about the exclusion part. Cause like, I don't understand Urdu, but a lot of things that I'm doing require Urdu. And I, oh, like, wow, I, I had no idea. Yeah. I, I can't read Urdu at all. Uh, I mean, no, I can read a little bit, but like, it's not, I mean, I can just speak. Um, and I'll understand Which is an interesting diaspora preservation thing yeah. because I think, you know, I have met um, quite a bunch of people of, you know, the last 20 years generation from, uh, especially Pakistan that don't read Urdu. And here, like, you know, the grandmothers made sure to taught, teach us at that time in the 80s because it was that idea of like, hang on to it, hang on to it, hang on to I it. Mean, I mean, I'm, I'm very much for that hanging on to it, you know, like, I'm, and I'm seeing it in the next generation of like my nieces and my nephews. For me, I can't, I can't really read it, but I'm fluent in speaking it. In school, mm -hmm. I never studied it because I mean, we grew up here. I took French. I don't even speak Arabic. I speak French. I'm fluent in French. But when it comes to Urdu, like my Urdu is fine. Like speaking, it's fine. Business Urdu is like absolutely non-existent. But then now we're doing Dastan Goya where a lot of the stuff is in Urdu or in Punjabi. And then I'm Punjabi, but I don't understand Punjabi at all. There's like all these different dynamics for sure. And, it, and, and that kind of, it does exclude you from mm -hmm. trying to even, you know, be able to kind of make sense of this world. Um, and I think like the time that I spent in Pakistan, for sure, my Urdu improved a lot. And my wife is the opposite of me. She is not very good at speaking it, but she can read it perfectly. So wherever mm -hmm. I can't, you know, understand, she'll read it and then I'll make sense of it. Like it's, it's a great like way to, way to come together as a team. Um, that works for us. But I think, you know, like when you say 
and you talk about language, I think language is such a fascinating subject. What, what, what language do you, what, what do you think in? You know, I, I think mostly in English. In English? Yeah. But I mean, when I was younger, I think I used to think more in Urdu. So it's, it, it can change, you know. Uh, my dreams used to be in Urdu, but now they're just, now there's no language in the dreams. So I don't know if that means if I'm evolving or devolving. I don't no, know. Wait, no, wait, there's a reason for, for that question now, because a lot of the artwork that you do, I would assume, I mean, I know I'm, I might be wrong here, but it again takes you back to that initial kind of understanding of, of, of the way you kind of grew up and the religion and, and everything. So would, when you are thinking about the artworks, are you still thinking in Urdu, or, sorry, in English or in Urdu as well? You know, I mean, in terms of conceptualizing them, I think I'm thinking of them in English, okay. like in terms of the, but there's always a part of, of the Urdu language that comes in and I'm really invested in because that's my, that's the matrix I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I grew up with my mother quoting poetry at me you know, all day. And so those verses are part of me. And so it is something that I am really, you know, drawn to communicating in. And I'm also resistant not to the idea that everything has to be translated, you know, which I think sometimes for me showing work as an artist in, in the U.S., can be um, a little tricky because of that, because I'm, I am resistant to the, this idea that everything needs to be explained or translated. And, you know, it's, I'm not making my art to educate people. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm actually not doing anything. For me, like even Diskostan is not necessarily about educating people. Um, it's, you know, you provide pieces of it, but I don't believe in anyone giving an exhaustive narrative. You know, I think that's actually um, a very problematic place to operate from. So I'm, you know, everything is kind of like, for me, about fragmentation, um, about, um, you know, the sum of the of, of, of fragments making, um, making a whole. Or, uh, you know, a concept I've come across recently, um, there's a philosopher, a post-colonial philosopher named um, Edouard Guessant, who talks about the right to opacity. So the idea that actually when you conceal something, it can be a place of power, you know, especially as a um, marginalized population or, or, you know, sector, that it can actually be, you know, that we're not bound always to share everything or disclose everything and in the moment of surveillance and constant social media and all of these things and and you know i see a lot of artists who work with um our traditional bodies of knowledge but you know i think there has to be care in how it's done um in terms of like what who's your audience what are you doing it yeah. for you know is it just um is it just to I don't know, you know, um, I think it just has to be thoughtful because a lot of this stuff is knowledge that we've carried with us internally and should it all suddenly be like, you know, just this material. I have a question. With the artworks that you create, because it's between performance, it's um, sculpture, it's um, music, 
um, it's experiential. With each artwork that you present, what is your goal? Is there like an overarching goal with what you're trying to put out? I really think I'm trying to um, connect to people at a kinetic level, at an embodied level, at an you know a sense sensory level, and something that um, has to do more with your subconscious or your dream state. Um, you know, there's there's so much talk about changing things at a legal or policy level, but to me that always feels you know superficial it can be superficial because it's not really it's changing how you might act but really is it changing how you think and feel about things mm -hmm. and i think the way that you change think i personally think from at least from my own experience which is ultimately all i know um that for something to change for me it's like the story has to change the way you know the foundational way i think about something has to change and the way that that's going to happen sometimes is not by statistics, you know, being thrown at me um, or like this immeasurable amount of pain because we see that everywhere, you know, all the time. Like there's so much trauma and violence in the world. And if you're just barraging people with that, at some point they lose their sensitivity. Yeah. Right. And so, and their, their ability to empathize where I do think we can change is um, make change really profound changes people's dreams and their subconscious. I think about it in the same way that, um, you know, when we think about the earth itself and all of the shapes that we see, the mountains, the rivers, yeah. all of that is being formed by very subtle movements under the surface, right? Like tectonic plates moving, all these things that we don't really sense. But then one day that will, like one day that will create this, really big change in what we see in the morphology around us. So I kind of think of our world, our like world as humans, you know, in terms of like our social world, our thinking world, our conceptual world. Um, I think of it in the same way. So, you know, that it's really these perhaps invisible changes over time, like geological time, really, that can, that can change us. And I think even when we think about change, we really have to think about beyond our own lifetimes. We all have gotten so used to immediacy. 100%. I mean, as you were talking about that as well, what kind of was coming to my mind was the, the like I've been re reading all of this research on, um, on psilocybin and how that can have, right? And, and, and how getting into these states can, can shift your perspective and, and change as well. I mean, not through art, but actually rewiring um, well, your brain. But it's, it's, it's interesting that you speak about that, right? Because like, sometimes what we think, or at least I think that I can like have this profound effect on someone, but in the, at the end of the day, sometimes I can't. Like the only person I can change is myself. And then hope that people will be able to kind of appreciate or see that change mm -hmm. reflected. Right. Yeah, totally. I'm really into this idea um, recently within myself of modeling behavior. Yeah. Rather than instructing, you know, just try actually, it's an age old thing, just trying to um, change the way I communicate with people or the language that I use. 
um, or the gestures that I will enact um, in, in hopes that, you know, I mean, or at least that's where I can, that's the only influence that I can really have at the end of the day, you know, is in my personal interactions with people and, you know, what, what I can model or how, what kind of communication we can build, you know. So 100%. I really believe in working on smaller scales to affect, you know. Last question, actually. Tell me about three experiences that have changed your life the most. I should have asked you for like a, what are your questions going to be? <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, so the first one that comes to mind is um, about four years ago, I um, decided to row into the Everglades by myself in a kayak. Okay. Um, I was just had this like romantic idea about being in a kayak and being in the swamp. And... I knew there would be alligators in the swamp, but <laughs> I didn't realize how many there would be. And I didn't realize that I was going to be alone. <laughs> I mean, I knew I was going to be alone, but I didn't know how alone I was going to be. Um, so, um, so that was quite a life-changing experience, I feel like, on so many levels. Um, in terms of, you know, being a... Um, yeah, really coming down to your elemental. It was like a very Hemingway experience. So, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I, I, I don't know where, I think at some point I completely froze. And then like after a few hours of me just being in this kayak with like six alligators around me, like literally right there. And like they were just like chilling. But, you know, if you knock into them, then they, it's, and I was just like, I was so clumsy, you know, I didn't know what to do. And so anyways, there's someone, a fisherman, a proverbial fisherman that came along after many hours. And then having just another human being there. You were just there? Like, yeah. Were I just stopped just... rowing. I stopped rowing. It was supposed to be a five mile thing and maybe two miles and froze, completely froze. Because they were everywhere. And I was like, what am I going to do? You know, if I go ahead, then I might agitate one because oh I'm God, so clumsy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's <laughs> a life-changing experience. Uh, actually, I think, you know, um, yeah, that was definitely um, an interesting, interesting thing. Um, another one was being in Pakistan, actually, probably by myself in 2014. So I'm from Hyderabad, but I came from, I came to, um, you know, record um, and document in the Belgas because that's something I had been really drawn to, um, you know, in my continuing exploration to my, to my spirituality. Um, but yeah, just kind of being there um, in those situations. And then, you know, I had experienced both sides because um, I have family in Islamabad, second cousins that are actually part of the Tablighi Jamaat. Mm -hmm. So it's a completely oh. different realm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's, yeah, okay, now yeah, it's really intense. So I didn't actually, I went to Pakistan, like I didn't tell them what, it, what my project was because they would not have approved. approved 100%. Yeah, so then yeah. I went, but so then there's this completely like different experience of, of being in Pakistan. And um, that was really, and you know, a, a, and being in Sindh was amazing. I met um, some of the most amazing people there and just the hospitality um i was out you know kind of a lot of the shrines are a few hours outside of karachi so um that was really quite amazing i witnessed um some beautiful things um some things that defy logic and you know 
that's one of the, um, I think, you know, reasons that I keep getting drawn back to going, um, going to India and Pakistan, because in some ways, I feel like that's changing with development and globalization. But in some ways, you know, it really changed my idea of what literacy is, because, you know, you would be in these areas where people were not literate, but then they would carry these, like thousands of verses of whoever the, you know, the saint is, their poetry, they're just carrying this, this verse in them, you know, it's a different kind of knowledge. And it really changed my ideas about what it means to be, you know, like we have these ideas about education and degrees and all of these things. Um, so yeah, that would be another one. Um, third one. I was in Algeria a couple of years ago and I went there to follow this music. Um, so I kind of do this applied ethnography work on my own, but, you know, really, again, trying to change the ideas of, of what, how this work is framed and um, just being in, um, having the privilege to go to this, um, this country that is like so um, storied in the history of revolution and, and, and you know, um, anti-colonial resistance uh, was really, you know, just really amazing. I mean, it's Algeria has remained relatively closed to tourism and things like that. I think they have something like a reciprocal visa thing. So they'll only give as many visas to a country as that country will give to an Algerian citizen. I, that's my understanding. So it's, it's not the same as, you know, Morocco or, you know, no, Egypt and having yeah. this like stream of tourists. But um, I went there following um, the music that had been recorded by Aisha Ali, who's, um, who is in, you know, she is a, uh, like me, or, you know, she's a huge role model for me, an independent um, historian who had gone to North Africa in the 70s at, on her own to record music, um, traditional music. And uh, so she had this record from Algeria, from this particular tribe, and I was obsessed with this record. So I decided to just go involved into, um, it was difficult to travel in Algeria for a lot of reasons, but um, I, you know, so the project is to be completed, but it was really just, you know, amazing to be, to be in that, in that place for sure. Thank you so much for listening. If you guys have any comments or feedback, please do send them my way. You can reach me on Instagram or you can send me an email um, at ama.saeed at gmail.com or um, on Instagram at um, The Ahmad Show. Until next time, take care.